Part four of Portrait of a Man with Red Hair by Hugh Walpole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part four The Tower Section one. One with an instinctive movement, both Harkness and Dunbar closed in upon Hester. The three stood just in front of the heavy locked door facing the dim hall. On the bottom stair was Crispin Sr., and on the floor below him, one on either side, the two Japanese servants. A glittering candelabra, hanging high up, was fully lit, but it seemed to give a very feeble illumination, as though the fog had penetrated here also. Crispin was wearing white silk pajamas, brown leather slippers, and a dressing gown of a rich bronze-colored silk, flowered with gold buds and leaves. His eyes were half-closed, as though the light, dim though it was, was too strong for him. His face wore a look of petulant, rather childish melancholy. The two servants were statues indeed, no sign of life proceeding from them. There was, however, very little movement anywhere, the flags moving in the draft, the chief. Hester's face was white, and her breath came in little sharp pants, but she held her body rigid. Harkness, after that first cry, was silent, but Dunbar stepped forward, shouting, "'You damned hound! You let us go, or you shall have this place about your ears!' The hall echoed the words, which, to tell the truth, sounded very empty and theatrical. They were made to sound the more so by the quietness of Crispin's reply. "'There is no need,' he said, "'for all those words, Mr. Dunbar. "'It is your own fault that you interfered "'and must pay for your interference. "'I warned you weeks ago not to annoy me. "'Unfortunately, you wouldn't take advice. "'You have annoyed me, sadly, "'and must suffer the consequences. "'If you touch a hair of her head,' he burst out. "'As to my daughter-in-law,' Crispin said, stepping down onto the floor and suddenly smiling, I can assure you that she is in the best possible hands. She knows that herself, I'm sure. What induced you, Hester, he said, addressing her directly, to climb out of your window like the heroine of a cinematograph and career about on the seashore with these two gentlemen is best known only to yourself. At least you saw the error of your ways and are in time, after all, to go abroad with us today. He advanced a step toward them. And you, Mr. Harkness, don't you think that you have rather violated the decencies of hospitality? I think you will admit that I showed you nothing but courtesy as host. I invited you to dinner and then to my house, showed you my few poor things, and how have you repaid me? Is this the famous American courtesy? And, may I ask, while we are on the question, what business is this of yours? It was anybody's business, said Harkness firmly, to rescue a helpless girl from such a house as this. Indeed, asked Crispin, and what is the matter with this house? Here Hester broke in. "'Look back two nights ago,' she cried, "'and ask yourself then what is the matter with this house "'and whether it is a place for a woman to remain in.' "'For myself,' said Crispin, "'I think it is a very nice house, "'and I'm quite sorry that we are leaving it today. "'That is, some of us, not all,' he added softly. "'If you are going to murder us,' Dunbar cried, "'get done with it. "'We don't fear you, you know, whatever color your hair may be. "'But whether you murder us or no, I can tell you one thing, "'that your own time has come. "'Not many more hours of liberty for you.' "'All the more reason to make the most of those I have got,' said Crispin. "'Murder you? Oh, no!' but you have fallen in very opportunely for the testing of certain theories of mine i look forward to a very interesting hour or two it is now just four o'clock we leave this house at eight or at least some of us do i can promise all of us a very interesting four hours with no time for sleep at all 
I have no doubt you are all tired. Wandering about in the fog for so long must be fatiguing, but I don't see any of you sleeping, not for an hour or two at least. Hester said then, Mr. Crispin, I believe that I am chiefly concerned in this. If I promise to go quietly with you abroad, I hope that you will free these two gentlemen. I give you that promise, and I shall keep it. Uh, no, no, Dunbar cried, springing forward. You shan't go with him anywhere, Hester. By heaven, you shall not. Not while there's any breath in my body. And when there isn't any breath in your body, Mr. Dunbar, said Crispin, what then? A very good line for an Adelphi melodrama, Mr. Crispin, said Harkness, but it seems to me that we've stayed here talking long enough. I warn you that I am an American citizen, and am not to be kept here against my will. Aren't you indeed, Mr. Harkness, said Crispin. Well, uh, that's a line of Adelphi drama, if you like. How many times in a Secret Service play has the hero declared that he's an American citizen? Which only goes to show, I suppose, how near real life is to the theatre or rather how much more theatrical real life is than the theatre can ever hope to be. But you're all right, Mr. Harkness. I won't forget that you're an American citizen. You shall have special privileges. That I promise you. Dunbar then did a foolish thing. He made a dash for the farther end of the hall. What he had in mind, no one knows, in all probability to find a window, hurl himself through it, and escape to give the alarm. But the alarm to whom? That was, as far as things had yet gone, the foolishness of their position. A policeman arriving at the house would find nothing out of order, only that there two gentlemen had broken in, barbarously, at a midnight hour, to abduct the married lady of the family. Dunbar's effort was foolish in any case, its issue was that in a moment of time without noise or a word spoken the two japanese servants had him held one hand on either arm he looked stupid enough there in the middle of the hall his eyes dim with tears of rage his body straining ineffectively against that apparently light and casual hold but it was strange to perceive how that movement of dunbar's had altered all the situation before that the three were at least the semblance of visitors demanding of their host that they should be allowed to go now they were prisoners and knew it although hester and harkness were still untouched they were as conscious as was dunbar of a sudden helplessness and of a new fear Harkness watched Crispin, who had walked forward, and now stood only a pace or two from Dunbar. Harkness saw that his excitement was almost uncontrollable. His legs, set wide apart, were quivering, his nostrils panting, his eyes quite closed so that he seemed a blind man scenting out his enemy. "'You miserable fellow,' he said, and his voice was scarcely more than a whisper you fool to think that you could interfere i told you i warned you and now am i not justified yes a thousand times within the next hour you shall know what pain is and i shall watch you realize it then his body trembled with a sort of passionate rhythm as though he were swaying to the run of some murmured tune with his eyes closed and the shivering, it was like the performance of some devotional rite. At least Dunbar showed no fear. "'You can do what you damn well please,' he shouted. "'I'm not afraid of you, mad though you are.' "'Mad? Mad?' said Crispin, suddenly opening his eyes. "'Oh, that depends. Yes, that depends. Is a man mad who acts at last when given a perfectly just and honourable opportunity for a pleasure from which he has restrained himself because the opportunity hitherto was not honourable and madness a matter of taste my friends decides that i like olives you do not are you therefore mad surely not be broad-minded my friend you have much to learn and but little time in which to learn it 
Harkness perceived that the man was savoring every moment of this situation. His anticipations of what was to come were so ardent that the present scene was colored deep with them. He looked from one to another, tasting them, and his plans for them on his tongue. His madness, for never before had his eyes, his hands, his whole attitude of body, more highly proclaimed him mad, had in it all the preoccupation with some secret life that leads to such a climax. For months, for years, grains of insanity, like coins in a miser's hoard, had been heaping up to make this grand total. And now that the moment was come, he was afraid to touch the hoard lest it should melt under his fingers. He approached Harkness. Mr. Harkness, he said quite gently, believe me, I am sorry to see this. You took me in last evening. You did indeed. I felt that you had a real interest in the beautiful things of art, and we had that in common. All the time you were nothing but a dirty spy, a mean and dirty spy. What right had you to interfere in the private life of a private gentleman, who twenty-four hours ago was quite unknown to you, simply on the word of a crazy braggart boy? Have you so little to do that you must be poking your finger into everyone else's business?' I liked you, Mr. Harkness. As I told you quite honestly last evening, I don't know where I've met a stranger to whom I took more warmly. But you have disappointed me. You have only yourself to thank for this. Only yourself to thank. Harkness replied firmly, Mr. Crispin, I had every right to act as I have done, and I only wish to God that it had been successful. It is true that when I came down to Cornwall yesterday, I had no knowledge of you or your affairs, but in the Trellis Hotel, quite inadvertently, I overheard a conversation that showed me quite plainly that it was someone's place to interfere. What I have seen of you since that time, if you will forgive the personality, has only strengthened my conviction that interference, immediate and drastic, was most urgently necessary. Thanks to the fog, we have failed. For Dunbar and myself, we are for the moment in your power. Do what you like with us, but at least have some pity on this child here, who has done you no wrong. Oh, very fine, very fine, said Crispin. Mr. Harkness, you have a style, an excellent style and I congratulate you on having lost almost completely your American accent. A relief for all of us. But come, come, uh, this has lasted long enough. I would point out to you two gentlemen that, as one of you has already discovered, any sort of resistance is quite useless. We will go upstairs. One of my servants first, you two gentlemen next, my other servant following, then my daughter-in-law myself. Please, gentlemen. He said something in a foreign tongue. One Japanese started upstairs. Harkness and Dunbar followed. There was nothing else at that moment to be done. Only at the top of the stairs, Dunbar turned and cried, Buck up, Esther. It will be all right. And she cried back in a voice marvelously clear and brave. I'm not frightened, David. Don't worry. Harkness had a momentary impulse to turn, dash down the stairs again, and run for the window, as Dunbar had done. But as though he knew his thought, the Japanese behind him laid his hand on his arm. The thin fingers pressed like steel. At the upper floor, Dunbar was led one way, himself another. One Japanese, his hand still on his arm, opened a door and bowed. Harkness entered. The door closed. He found himself in total obscurity. 2. He did not attempt to move about the room, but simply sank down onto the floor where he was. He was in a state of extreme physical weariness. His body ached from head to foot, but his brain was active and urgent. This was the first time to himself that he had had, with the exception of his cliff-climbing, since his leaving the hotel last evening, and he was glad of the loneliness. The darkness seemed to help him. He felt that he could think here 
more clearly. He sat there, huddled up, his back against the wall, and let his brain go. At first it would do little more than force him to ask over and over again, Why? 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 Why did we do this imbecile thing? Why, when we had all the world to choose from, did we find our way back into this horrible house? It was a temptation to call the thing magic, and to have done with it, really to suggest that the older Crispin had wizard powers, or at least hypnotic, and had willed them back. But he forced himself to look at the whole thing clearly as a piece of real life, as true and as actual as the ham and eggs and buttered toast that in another hour or two all the world around him would be eating. Yes, as real and actual as a toothbrush, that was what this thing was. There was nothing wizard about Crispin. He was a dangerous lunatic, and there were hundreds like him in any asylum in the country. As for their return, he knew well enough that in a fog people either walked round and round in a circle, or returned to the place that they had started from. At this point in his thoughts a tremor shook his body. He knew where that was from, and the anticipation that lying, like a chained animal deep in the recesses of his brain, must soon be loosed and then bravely faced. But not yet, oh no, not yet, let his mind stay with the past as long as it might. In the past was Crispin. He looked back over that first meeting with him, the actual moment when he had asked him for a match, the dinner, the return to the hotel, when, influenced then by all that Dunbar had told him, he had seen him standing there, the polite gestures, the hospitable words, the drive in the motor. His mind stopped abruptly there. The door swung to, the lock was turned. In that earlier Crispin there had been something deeply pathetic, and when he dared to look again, he would see that in the later Crispin there was the same. So with a sudden flash of lightning revelation that seemed to flare through the whole dark room, he saw that it was not the real Crispin with whom they, Hester, Dunbar, and he, were dealing at all. No more than the ravings of fever were the real patient, the wicked cancerous growth, the real body, the broken glass, the real picture, that seemed to be shattered beneath it. They were dealing with a wild and dangerous animal, and in the grip of that animal, pitiably, was the true struggling, suffering soul of Crispin. Not struggling now, perhaps, any more. The disease had gone too far growing through a thousand tiny, almost unnoticed stages to this horrible possession. He knew now, yes, as he had never, never known it, and would perhaps never have known it, had it not been for the sudden love for and tenderness towards human nature that had come to him that night, what in the old world they had meant by the possession of evil spirits what it was that Christ had cast out in his ministry, what it was from which David had delivered King Saul. Quick on this came the further question. If this were so, might he not perhaps, when the crisis came, as come he knew it would, appeal to the real Crispin, and so rescue both themselves and him? He did not know. It had all gone so far. The animal, with its beastly claws deep in the flesh, had so tight a hold. He realized that it was, in all probability, the personality of Hester herself that had urged it to such extremes. There was something in her clear-sighted, simple defiance of him that had made Crispin's fear of his powerlessness, the fear that had always contributed to his most dangerous excesses, climb to its utmost height. He had decided, perhaps, that this was to be the real final test of his power, that this girl should submit to him utterly. Her escape had stirred his sense of failure, as nothing else could do. And then their return, all the nervous excitement of that night, the constant alarm of the neighborhoods in which they had stayed, so that, 
as the younger Crispin had said, they had been driven from pillar to post, all these things had filled the bowl of insanity to overflowing. Could he rescue Crispin as well as themselves? Once more a tremor ran through his body, because if he could not, once more he thrust the anticipation back, pulling himself up from the floor, and beginning slowly, feeling the wall with his hand like a blind man, to walk round the room. His eyes now were better accustomed to the light, but he could make out but little of where he was. He supposed that he was on the second floor, where were the rooms of Hester and the younger Crispin. The place seemed empty, there was no sound from the house. He might have been in his grave. Fantastic stories came to his mind. Poe-like stories of walls and ceilings growing closer and closer, of floors opening beneath the foot into watery dungeons, of fiery eyes seen through the darkness. He repeated then aloud, I am Charles Percy Harkness. I am thirty-five years of age. I was born at Baker, Oregon, in the United States of America. I am in sound mind and in excellent health. I came down to Cornwall yesterday afternoon for a holiday, recommended to do so by Sir James Meredith Bart. This gave him some little satisfaction. To himself, he continued, still walking and touching the wallpaper with his hand, I am shut up in a dark room in a strange house at four in the morning for no other reason than that I meddled in other people's affairs, and I'm glad that I meddled. I am in love, and whatever comes out of this, I do not regret it. I would do over again exactly what I have done, except that I should hope to do it better next time. He felt then seized with an intense weariness. He had known that he was long ago physically tired, but excitement had kept that at bay. Now, quite instantly, as though a spring in the middle of his back had broken, he collapsed. He sank down there on the floor where he was, and all huddled up, his head hanging forward into his knees, he slept. He had a moment of conscious subjective rebellion when something cried to him, Don't surrender, keep awake, it is part of his plan that you should sleep here, you are surrendering to him. And from long, misty distances he seemed to hear himself reply, don't care what happens any more. They can do what they like. They can do what they like. And almost at once he was conscious that they were summoning him. A tall, thin figure, like an old German drawing, with wild hair, set mouth, menacing eye like Baldung Saturnus, stood before him and pointed the way into vague, misty space. Other figures were moving about him, and he could see, as his eyes grew stronger, that a vast multitude of naked persons were sliding forward like pale lava from a volcano down a steep, precipitous slope. As they moved, there came from them a shuddering cry like the tremor of the ground beneath his feet. "'Not there, not there!' Harkness cried, and Saturnus answered, "'Not yet, you have not been judged.' Almost instantly a judgment followed, judgment in a narrow, dark passage that rocked backward and forward like the motion of a boat at sea. The passage was dark, but on either side of its shaking walls were cries and shouts and groans and piteous wails and clouds of smoke poured through as into a tunnel, blinding the eyes and filling the nostrils with a horrible stench. No figure could be seen, but a voice, strong and menacing, could be heard, and Harkness knew that it was himself the voice was addressing. His naked body, slippery with sweat, the acrid smoke blinding him, the voices deafening him, the rocking of the floor bewildering him, he felt desperately that he must clear his mind to answer the charges brought against him. The voice was clear and calm. On February 2, 1905, your friend Richard Hentley was accused in the company of many people, during his absence, of having ill-treated his wife while in Florence. You knew that this was totally untrue and could have given evidence to the effect, but from cowardice you let the moment pass 
and your friend's position was seriously damaged. What have you to say in your defense? The thick smoke rolled on. The walls tottered. The cries gathered in anguish. On March 13, 1911, you wired to your sisters in America that you were ill in bed when you were in perfect health because you wished to stay for a week longer in London in order to attend some races. What have you to say in your defense? On October 3, 1906, you grievously added to the unhappiness of Mrs. Harrington Adams by asserting in mixed company that no one in New York would receive her and that all Americans were astonished that she should be received at all in London. Here, at any rate, was an opportunity. Through the smoke he cried, There at least I am innocent. I've never known Mrs. Harrington Adams. I've never even seen her no the voice replied but you spoke to mrs phillips who spoke to miss cater who then cut mrs adams other people followed miss cater's example and you were quoted as an authority mrs adams london life was ruined she had never done you any harm on december fourteenth nineteen twelve you told your sisters that you hated the sight of them and their stuffy ways that their attempts at culture were ridiculous and that, like all American women, they were absurdly spoilt. Through the smoke, Harkness shouted, I'm sure I never said, uh, the voice replied, I am quoting your exact words. In a moment of pique, I lost my temper. Of course, I didn't mean. On June 3, 1913, you went secretly into the library of a friend and stole his book of Rembrandt drawings. You knew in your heart that you had no intention of returning it to him, and when, some months later, he spoke of it, wishing to lend it to you, and wondered why he could not find it, you said nothing to him about your own possession of it. Harkness blushed through the rolling smoke. Yes, that was shameful, he cried, but I knew that he didn't care about the book, and I... What have you to say against these charges? They are all little things, Harkness cried, small things. Everyone does them. Judgment, 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 cried the voice, and suddenly he felt himself moving in the vast waters of human nudity that were slipping down the incline. He tried to stay himself. He flung out his hands and touched nothing but cold, slimy flesh. Faster and faster and faster, colder and colder and colder darker and darker and darker despair seized him he called on his friends others were calling on every side of him thousands and thousands of names mingled in the air the smoke came up to meet them vast billowing clouds of it he knew with a horrible consciousness that below him a sea of upturned swords were waiting to receive them soon they would be impaled with a shriek of agony, he awoke. He had not been asleep for more, perhaps, than ten minutes, but the dream had unnerved him. When he rose from the ground, he tottered and stood trembling. He knew now why it was that his enemy had designed that he should sleep. He knew now that he could no longer ward off the animal that on padded feet had been approaching him. The pain, the pain, the pain. The sweat beaded his forehead, his knees gave way, and he sank yet again upon the floor. He was murmuring, anything but that, anything but that. I can't stand pain. I can't stand pain, I tell you. Don't you know that I've always funked it all my life long? That I've always prayed that whatever else I got, it wouldn't be that? that I've never been able to bear to see the tiniest thing hurt, and that in all my thought about going to the war, although I didn't try to escape it, it was even more the pain that I should see than the pain that I would feel. And now to wait for it like this, to know that it may be torture of the worst kind, that I am in the power of a man who can reason no longer, who is himself in the power of something stronger and more evil than any of us. Then dimly it came through to him that he had been given three tests to-night, 
and as it always is in life the three tests especially suited to his character his strength and weakness his past history the dance had stripped him of his aloofness and drawn him into life his love for hester that he had surrendered had taken from him his selfishness and now he must lose his fear of pain but that how could he lose it it was part of the very fibre of his body his nerves throbbed with it his heart beat with it he could not remember a time when it had not been part of him when he had been five or six his father had decided that he must be beaten for some little crime his father was the gentlest of human beings and the beating would be very little but at the sight of the whip something had cracked inside his brain he was not a coward he had stood up to the beating without a tear but the sense of the coming pain had been more awful than anything that he could have imagined it was the same afterwards at school he was no coward there either shared in the roughest games stood up to bullies ventured into the most dangerous places but one night earache had attacked him it was a new pain for him and he thought that he had never known anything so terrible worse than all else were the intermissions between the attacks and the warnings that a new attack was soon to begin that approach was what he feared that terrible and fearful approach he had said very little had only lain there white and trembling but the memory of all those awful hours stayed with him always any thought of suffering in others of poor women in childbirth of rabbits caught in traps of dogs poisoned of children run over or accidentally wounded these things if he knew of them produced an odd sort of sympathetic pain in himself the strangest thing had been that in the war with all its horrors had not driven him crazy as he might have expected from his earlier history on so terrible a scale was it that his senses soon became numbed he did the work that he was given to do and heard of the rest like cries beyond the wall again and again he had tried to mingle himself in it he had always been prevented a dog run over by a motor-car struck him more terribly than all the agonies of ip but these things what had they to do with his present case he could not think at all his brain literally reeled as though it shook tried to steady itself could not and then turned right over his body was alive standing up with all its nerves on tiptoe how was he to endure these hours that were coming to him i must get out of this someone not himself cried it seemed to him that he could hear the strange voice in the room i must get out of this how dare they keep me if i demand to be let out i am an american citizen let me out of this can't you hear bring me a light and let me out i've had enough of this dark room what do you mean by keeping me here you think that you are stronger than i try and see it let me out i say let me out he tottered to his feet and ran across the room although he could not see his way blundering against the opposite wall he beat upon it with his hands let me out do you hear let me out he was not himself Darkness. he could no longer repeat those earlier words he was nobody nothing nothing at all they could not hurt him then try as they might they could not hurt him harkness when he was not harkness he laughed stroking the wall gently with his hand as though it were his friend it's all right do you see you can't hurt me because you can't find me i'm hiding i don't know where to find myself so that it isn't likely you will find me you can't hurt nothing you know you can't indeed he laughed and laughed and laughed gently enjoying his own joke there was a sudden knocking on the door come in he said in a whisper come in his heart stood still with fear the door opened splashing into the darkness a shower of light like water flung from a bucket in the centre of this the two japanese were standing master says please come if you ready he ready at the sight of the japanese a marvellous thing had happened 
all his fear had on the instant left him his beastly physical fear it fell from him like an old suit of clothes discarded he was himself clear-headed cool collected and in some strange new way happy harkness followed them three harkness followed conscious only of one thing his sudden marvellous and happy deliverance from fear he could not analyze it he did not wish to he did not consider the probable length of its duration enough that for the present crispin might cut him into small pieces skin him alive boil him in a large pot like a lobster and he would not care he followed the sleek servants like a schoolboy the tower then at last he was to see the interior of this mysterious place it had exercised all through this adventure a strange influence over him standing up in his imagination white and pure and apart washed by the sea guarded by the woods behind it having a spirit altogether of its own and quite separate from the man who for the moment occupied it this would be perhaps the last building on this world that would see his bones move and have their being he had a sense that it knew and sympathized with him and wished him luck meanwhile he walked quietly his chance would still come and with dunbar beside him or was he never to see dunbar again some of his new-found courage trembled the worst of this present moment was his loneliness was the final crisis to be fought out by himself with no friends at hand was he never to see hester again he had an impulse to throw himself forward attack the servants and let come what will the silence of the house was terrible only their footsteps soft on the thick carpet and he could wring a cry or two from his enemies that would be something no he must wait the happiness of others was involved with his own the men stopped before a dark wooded door they went through and were met by a white circular staircase up this they passed paused before another door and crossed the threshold into a high circular brilliantly lit room for the moment harkness his eyes dimmed a little by the shadows of the staircase could see nothing but the gayness and brightness of the place papered with a wonderful chinese pattern of green and purple birds cherry-coloured pagodas and crimson temples the carpet was a soft heavy purple and there were a number of little gilt chairs and in front of the narrow barred window a gilt cage with a green and crimson macaw all this standing by the door shading his eyes from the dazzling crystal candelabra he took in then suddenly saw something that swept away the rest hester and dunbar standing together hand in hand by the window he gave a cry of joy hurrying towards them it was as though he had not seen them for years they caught his hand in theirs crispin was there watching them like a benevolent father with his beloved children that's right he said make the most of your time together i want you to have a last talk he sat down on one of the gilt chairs won't you sit down in a moment i shall leave you alone together for a little while in case you have any last words then he leaned forward in that fashion so familiar now to harkness huddled together his red hair and little eyes and pale white soft hands alone alive well and so in my power are you not the three of you you can laugh at my ugliness and my stupidity and my bad character but now you are in my hands completely i can do whatever i like with you whatever the last shame the last indignity the uttermost pain i ludicrous creature that i am have absolute power over three fine young things like you so strong so beautiful and then more power and then more and then more and over many finer grander and more beautiful than you i can say crawl and you will crawl dance and you will dance i who am so ugly that every one has always laughed at me i am a little god 
and perhaps not so little, and soon God himself. He broke off, making the movement of music in the air with his hands. You a little overestimate the situation, said Harkness quietly. For the moment you can do what you like with our bodies, because you happen to have two servants who, with their jujitsu and the rest of their tricks, are stronger than we are. It is not you who are stronger, but your servants whom your money is able to buy. I guess if I had you tied to a pillar and myself with a gun in my hand, I could make you look pretty small. And in any case, it is only our bodies that you can do anything with. Ourselves, our real selves, you can't touch. Is that so? said Crispin. But I have not begun. The fun is all to come. We will see whether I can touch you or no. And for my daughter-in-law, he looked at Hester, there is plenty of time, many years, perhaps. Nothing in all his life would ever appeal more to Harkness than Hester then. From the first moment of his sight of her, what had attracted him had been the exquisite mingling of the child and of the woman. She had been for him at first some sort of deserted waif who had experienced all the cruelty and harshness of life so desperately early that she had known life upside down, and this had given her a woman's endurance and fortitude. She was like a child who has dressed up in her mother's clothes for a party, and then finds that she must take her mother's place. And now, when she must, after this terrible night, be physically beyond all her resources, she seemed, in her shabby, ill-made dress, her hair disordered, her face pale, her eyes ringed with grey, to have a new courage that must be similar to that which he had himself been given. She kept her hand in Dunbar's, and with a strange, dim, unexpected pain, Harkness realized that that new relation between the two, of which he had made the foundation, had grown through danger and anxiety the one for another already to a fine height. Then he was conscious that Hester was speaking. She had come forward quite close to Crispin, and stood in front of him, looking him calmly and clearly in the eyes. "'Please let me say something. After all, I am the principal person in this. If it hadn't been for me, there would not have been any of this trouble. I married your son, I married him, not because I loved him, but because I wanted things that I thought that you could give me.' I see now how wrong that was, and that I must pay for doing such a thing. I am ready to do right by your son. I never would have tried to run away if it had not been for you the other night. After that, I was right to do everything I could to get away. I begged your son first, and he refused. You have had me watched during the last three weeks, every step that I have taken. What could I do but try to escape? We failed, and because we failed, and because it has been all my fault, I want you to punish me in any way you like, but to let my two friends go. I was not wrong to try to escape. She threw up her head proudly. I was right after the way you had behaved to me, but now it is different. I have brought them into this. They have done nothing wrong. You must let them go." "'You must let all of us go,' Dunbar broke in hotly, starting forward to Hester's side. "'Do you think we're afraid of you, you old play-acting red-haired monkey? You just let us free, or it will be the worse for you. Do you know where you'll be this time tomorrow? Beating your fancy-colored hair against a padded cell, and that's where you should have been years ago.' "'No, no,' Hester broke in. "'No, no, David, that's not the way. You don't understand. Don't listen to him. I'm the only one in this. I tell you, can't you hear me, that I will stay. I won't try to run away. You can do anything to me you like. I'll obey you. I will, indeed. Please, please, don't listen to him. He doesn't understand. But I do. Let them go. They've done no harm. They only wanted to help me.' They didn't mean anything against you. They didn't truly. Oh, let them go. Let them go. 
In spite of her struggle for self-control, her terror was rising, her terror never for himself, but now only for them. She knew, more than they, of what he was. She saw, perhaps, in his face more than they would ever see. But Harkness saw enough. He saw rising into Crispin's eyes the soul of that strange, hairy, fetid-smelling animal between whose paws Crispin's own soul was now lying. That animal looked out of Crispin's eyes, and beyond that gaze was Crispin's own terror. Crispin said, oh, This is very comforting for me. I've waited for this moment. Then Harkness came over to him and stood very close to him. Crispin, listen to me. It isn't the three of us who matter in this. It is yourself. Whatever you do to us, we are safe. Whatever you think or hope, you cannot touch the real part of us. But for yourself, tonight, this is a matter of life or death. I may know nothing about medicine, and yet know enough to tell you that you're a sick man, badly sick, and if you let this animal that has his grip on you get the better of you in the next two hours, you're finished, you're dead. You know that as well as I. You know that you're possessed of an evil spirit as surely as the man with the spirits that cleared the Gadarene swine into the sea. It isn't for our sakes that I ask you to let us go tonight. Let us go. You'll never hear from any of us again. In the morning, in the decent daylight, you'll know that you've won a victory more important than any you've ever won in your life. You talk about mastering us, man. Master your own evil spirit. You know that you loathe it, that you've loathed it for years, that you are miserable and wretched under it. It is life or death for you tonight, I tell you. You know that as well as I. For one moment, a brief flashing moment, Harkness met for the first and for the last time the real Crispin. No one else saw that meeting, straight into the eyes, gazing out of them exactly as a prisoner gazes from behind iron bars, jumped the real Crispin, something sad, starved, and dying. One instant of recognition, and he was gone. "'That is very kind of you, Mr. Harkness,' Crispin said. "'I knew that I should enjoy this quarter of an hour's chat with you all, and truly I am enjoying it. My friend Dunbar shows himself to be quite frankly the young ruffian he is. It will be interesting to see whether in, say, an hour's time from now, he is still in the same mind. I doubt it. Quite frankly, I doubt it very much.' It is these robust natures that break the easiest. But you other two, really how charming. All altruism and unselfishness. This lady has no thought for anything but her friends. And Mr. Harkness, like all Americans, is full of fine idealism. And you are all standing round me as though you were my children listening to a fairy story. Such a pretty picture. And when you come to think of it here, I am quite alone, all defenseless, one to three. Why don't you attack me? Such an admirable opportunity. Can it be fear? Fear of an old, fat, ugly man like me? A man at whom everyone laughs? Dunbar made a movement. Harkness cried, Don't move, Dunbar. Don't touch him. That's what he wants. Crispin got up. They were now all standing in a little group close together. Crispin gathered his dressing gown around him. The time is nearly up, he said. I'm going to leave you alone together for a little last talk. You'll never see one another again after this, so you had best make the most of it. You see that I am not really unkind. It is hopeless, Harkness turned round to the window. God help us all. Yes, it is hopeless, Crispin said gently. At last my time has come. Do you know how long I've waited for it? Do you know what you represent to me? You have done me wrong, the two of you, broken my hospitality, betrayed my bread and salt, invaded my home. I have justice if I punish you for that. But you stand also for all the others, 
for all who have insulted me and laughed at me and mocked at me. I have power at last. I shall prick you, and you shall bleed. I shall spit on you, and you shall bow your heads. And then, when you are at my feet, stung with a thousand wounds, I will raise you and care for you and love you, and you shall share my power. He jumped suddenly from his gilt chair and strutted, waving his hands as though he were commanding an army, towards the macaw, who was asleep with his head under his crimson wing. I shall be king in my own right, king of men, emperor of mankind, then one with the gods, and at last I will shower my gifts. He broke off, looking up at a red lacquer clock that stood on a little round gilt table. Time, 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 nearly up. He swung round upon the three of them. Dunbar burst out. Don't flatter yourself that you'll get away tomorrow. When we're missed, you won't be missed, Crispin answered with a sigh, as though he deeply regretted the fact. The hotel will receive a note in the morning, saying that Mr. Harkness has gone for a coast walk, will return in a week, and will the hotel kindly keep his things until his return. Of course, the hotel most kindly will. For Mr. Dunbar, well, I believe there's only an aunt in Gloucester, is there not? It will be, I imagine, a month at least before she makes any inquiry. Possibly a year. Possibly never. Who knows? Aunts are often extraordinarily careless about their nephew's safety. And in a week, where can one not be in a week in these modern days? Very far, indeed. Then there is the sea. Anything dropped from the garden over the cliff so completely vanishes, and their faces are so often, well, spoilt beyond recognition. If you do this, Hester cried, I will— I regret to say, interrupted Crispin, that after eight this morning you will not see your father-in-law, of whom you are so fond, for six months at least. Ah, that is good news for you, I'm sure. That is not to say you will never see him again. Dear me, no. But not immediately, not immediately. Harkness caught Hester's hand. He saw that she was about to make some desperate movement. Wait, he said, wait, we can do nothing now. For answer, she drew him to her and flung out her hand to Dunbar. We three, we love one another, she cried. Do your worst. Crispin looked once more at the clock. Melodrama, he said. I, too, will be melodramatic. I give you twenty minutes by that clock. A situation familiar to every theatre-goer. When that clock strikes six, I shall, I'm afraid, want the company of both of you gentlemen. Make your adieus, then, to the lady. Your eternal adieus. He smiled and gently tiptoed from the room. End of part four, section one.